Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 334 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Today's episode is brought to you by Belay and by Generis. Uh, they've got some things that are going to help you through this crisis, and uh, also by my new free course called How to Lead Through Crisis. Uh, I'm so glad you're joining us. You're going to love the guest today. If you don't know him, get ready, because <laughs> you're going to enjoy it. And if you do, I know a lot of you follow Mark Sayers, and uh, uh, I, he is one of the favorite voices that I have discovered in the last 12 months. Uh, we tell the story at the beginning of the interview of how I met him last year in London, England in May, hadn't really accessed his stuff, and it led to the biggest non-conversation that could have been. Anyway, we tried to make up for it today, so this one goes long and deep. And uh, Mark is one of the most profound thinkers, I think, alive today. He uh, is an amazing cultural commentator, has a broad understanding of history and also of what's happening in the world, a very global perspective as well. And so we talk about the current pandemic, the conditions that led into it, how it's changing the culture, how it threatens the secular salvation schema that he and John Mark Comer talk about. And uh, what's going to change in the future, in the church, what the new normal might look like. Uh, it's absolutely fascinating. And as we start thinking about what will happen post-pandemic, well, I think you're going to uh, want a notebook. Also, remember, we do offer transcripts. So there are transcripts at the show notes, and uh, we also have show notes. So if you want to go back and study this one, which I suspect you might, um, well, we can help with that. So Really glad you joined us. And hey, I hope you had a great first digital Easter with your family. I know things are really different right now. And I can imagine that some of you are really feeling the weight as well. So I just want you to know we're trying to come alongside you. We are talking about the current situation on this podcast uh, for most of the episodes now. And uh, well, if you're brand new, welcome. Uh, we have a lot of new listeners and uh, you can subscribe. You'll get everything automatically for free. So about a month ago, guess what? You started leading a remote team, right? Everybody did in business and church world. And uh, I've done it for a while, but you know who's done it for a long time is Belay. Uh, for over a decade now, and I know all of the top leaders there, they have had a 100% remote workforce of five-star virtual assistants, virtual bookkeeping services for churches, nonprofits, and businesses alike. And as everybody flexes with staff, they can come alongside you. So they have a special offer for you. In light of the current crisis, Belay is offering their free download of 13 ways to build a high-performing remote team to keep your remote team performing as if they're all in the office together. Listen, that is an art, and this is absolutely free. So if you'd like that, uh, their free download of 13 ways to build a high-performing remote team just text Kerry, C-A-R-E-Y, to 31996. That's Kerry to 31996. You can do that, get that automatically for free. I know the CEO, I know the founders. I have learned so much about leading a remote team from Belay. So just send Kerry, text Kerry to 31996. You'll get yourself that free PDF download. And then another problem that a lot of you are trying to negotiate right now is giving. According to the data that David Kidman and I work on at Church Pulse Weekly, 
the majority of churches, vast majority of churches have not seen a growth in giving. They've seen a decline. So uh, if you haven't created a culture of generosity before the COVID crisis, you're probably feeling the effects in a big way right now. Well, Generis would love to come alongside you and help because building a culture of generosity isn't really about short-term tactics that create a big burst of giving. It requires patience, persistence, and a focus on discipleship. So they've got a super practical online course called Fund the Vision. This can start to get you ready for what happens after the pandemic as well. So you can start now building a solid foundation that will increase giving in your church uh, the principal for Generis Group, Jim Shepard, walks you through the implementation of six key principles that will help you weather the storm and thrive when it passes. So check out their free video, Fund the Vision, and in it, you'll learn the philosophy of how to build a thriving culture and a culture of generosity that lasts. So you can head to generis.com forward slash carry. That's generis, G-E-N-E-R-I-S.com forward slash carry and access the free video, Fund the Vision. So just some resources to come alongside you and really try to help you. By the way, just real quick, if you haven't yet checked out How to Lead Through Crisis, that's my course, my absolutely free course on, well, guess what? How to Lead Through Crisis. Join over 5,000 leaders who have accessed that course for free in the last week or so. You can text the word crisis to 33777. I just love how organizations like Belay and Generis are coming alongside leaders, and we will get through this together. We honestly, honestly will. In the What I'm Thinking About segment, uh, I'm going to talk about uh, online engagement. Um, how do you measure online? What are you shooting for? The difference between views and engagements and so on. So hopefully that'll help. That's at the very end of the podcast. And in the meantime, I am so thrilled to bring you a fascinating conversation with Mark Sayers. He is one of the top thinkers and commentators today, a author of several books. He is the pastor of Red Church in Melbourne, Australia, and he co-hosts This Cultural Moment, uh, that podcast with John Mark Comer and the Rebuilders podcast, which he is doing about this crisis. So without further ado, my conversation with Mark Sayers. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Wonderful to be here. Yeah, we. Uh, I, I. I just want to start by saying thank you for all your work. We had. Uh, I was saying before we started recording, uh, the first time we met in person, it was kind of awkward. We were in London together, and we were staying, I think, at the same hotel. You were there with your family, and I knew who you were, and I had heard all about you, but I hadn't read your books at that point, or yet discovered um, this cultural moment. And so it was kind of one of those empty conversations where I had no good questions, and I went home and binged it. And have since met uh, John Mark Comer, and uh, you know we've connected in a couple of different ways. So it's just a thrill, and uh, I want to thank you on behalf of all leaders for the tremendous contribution you've made to the conversation. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah. So um, one of the things I think you are particularly gifted at is you have the ability to spot what I would call meta trends, or just you know the whole idea behind this cultural moment. You have an amazing ability to see what's going on, to name it, to call it, and to communicate it in a way that's clear. So we're here in the middle of the crisis. We were supposed to do this interview face-to-face -face a few days ago. Uh, my Australia trip wisely was canceled, and uh, you're in Melbourne, and I'm here in Toronto. Uh, but uh, what meta trends have been at play three weeks into this global crisis? Like, uh, I, I heard you in your own podcast, The Rebuilders, sort of touch on that, and I'd love you just to bring 
some of your thoughts into this moment? Yeah. Well, I, I had the sense that um, you know, a lot of my work for the last few years has been looking at uh, post-Christian you know, dynamic, particularly in the West. And I think there was a sense around church leaders, uh, cultural leaders, business leaders that uh, coming from a faith background, that there was this post-Christian dynamic that was at play, that it sort of caught up with us very quickly. Um, so a lot of my work's been around that. But I think probably a year ago, six months ago, I realized that I had this sense that post-Christianity and the West was about to be disrupted by globalization. This sense that as the world became more connected, it became more diverse. And um, that, you know, what does it look like when we're intimately connected to China? What does it look like when India, you know, rises, a billion, uh, over a billion people, you know, rising? And uh, what does it look like when we move sort of beyond which, what's been the American century into more of a true globalized century? And so, you know, I was just starting to postulate what would that all look like? Part of the beginning of this later season of uh, this cultural moment, which we've paused because in a sense it's jumped ahead of where we were was, you know, my, my bet that post-Christianity was about to get severely disrupted just at the moment we were starting to just really grapple with it. And so I see this, uh, you know, virus which has come out of Wuhan um, as an evidence of the, the lack of resilience that this global connected uh, ideology really in a sense that we thought if we just connect everything in the world, um, things will get better. And indeed they have. There's been a, a big uptake in people moving out of poverty in places like China and India. But in the midst of it as well, there was this tremendous weakness. Um, all it takes is one virus to shut everything down. And we're now living in the consequences of that. And, you know, I think that this is a profound switch. We've been uh, at a moment where we've never, ever had the entire world focused on one issue. We've become a one issue world at the moment. Um, so I just see this is an incredible once in a century moment, to be honest. And I think this is going to be profoundly change the world. Not everything will stop. You know, things will carry, there'll be things that carry on as per normal, but I think this is a definite sort of inflection point for the world. I think it was a surprise. And I mean, you can see, uh, you know, the movie outbreak or pandemic or, or things like that. And people always have this dystopian future, but I do think this caught everybody off guard. Before the whole coronavirus uh, sort of emerged as a story, where were you thinking it would go and where did you suspect, how did you suspect we might get disrupted? And uh, I'd just be curious as to where you imagined it might go. Yeah, so I think particularly the American century has been defined by the American story. And, um, you know, the United States has been the preeminent global power since the end of World War II and probably, you know, somewhere, but, you know, took over really from the United Kingdom and Europe. Um, and a lot of that story was an inward story. Um, the story in the world was defined by increasingly a political polarization between left and right, uh, which followed, I guess, the American pattern of politics. And I felt like, you know, what does it look like with the China rising? I began to study China more and more. Um, you had a China which was coming out of what it saw of a century of humiliation and wanted to be a global player in the world. It had a grand project under the premiership of Xi Jinping, which is called the Belt and Road Project, which was to connect the world, to reinvigorate the Silk Roads, which had given it power uh, in, you know, uh, when it was the middle kingdom of the world. Uh, you know, and I thought this is going to disrupt um, the West. Uh, what does it look like when I think we'd. We'd almost bought this myth in many Western countries that, hey, there was this, 
this person who out there who's unchurched and they're all super progressive. They all think of something similar. They're all very postmodern and very secular. And that's the new. So they live in, in Portland, basically, with John Mark, right? Yes, yes. yes. Um, but I just began to notice this didn't tally with what I experienced on the street. You know, like I would talk to someone and it could be an Iranian uh, refugee who's come to Melbourne, who's, you know, wrestling with what's happened to their country and, and you know, Islam and, you know, uh, questioning it all. Or it could be someone who'd grown up with a Catholic background and how do they, you know, the, am I religious? Am I not? There was just so much more diversity than what the big story was telling us. So I felt the diversity was going to undermine um, I think this sort of polarity where the church had been stuck in this political question between left and right. Oh, isn't that interesting? Yeah. And, you know, the other perspective you have, because I have visited Australia three times before this trip was shut down, and we plan to do it again in 2021 now, God willing. But you pay much more attention to Asia than we do in North America. I mean, if you think about it, your your vacation is in Bali or you head to Malaysia or something like that. And I think here in our part of the Western world, we just don't think in those terms. It seems very, um, yeah, very distant. And so you would see much more of a global culture perhaps than, and, and probably a different slice of it than you would in New York or Toronto. Yes. I mean, and I think the change is like, you know, traditionally when Australia had migration, people would come here right. and we've had people come all over the world. In a sense, it was, you know, you're leaving your, your old world behind, but the connectivity of this moment is fascinating. So I live in an area which is, um, heavily influenced by, um, uh, you know, people from mainland China. And what's interesting is starting to see the influence of, you know, the politics of mainland China come here, even in my local neighbourhood. Um, you know, we had the Chinese, uh, you know, flag flying over our police station. And, um, yeah, there was this moment where there was the rainbow flag was flying on lots of civic buildings around mm -hmm. the world. And so we then had that, you know, at the police station. But then it was interesting. So you had representatives say, hey, we want our culture represented as well. So all of a sudden during the Hong Kong protests at our local police station here in, you know, in Box Hill in Australia, you had the Chinese flag flying and you had it over our town hall. And then you had people who were backing the Hong Kong protests in this area saying, hang on, what's going on? And I saw that and I thought, this is a disruption. And so I think here in Australia, we've been more attuned to the fact of seeing the rising power of Asia. And it's not just China, it's India, it's, it's Singapore, it's Japan, it's South Korea. My daughter, um, it's just normal for her to listen to pop music from South Korea. Like Isn't I grew up listening to, yeah, it's just like, oh, is this, you know, she doesn't see it as world music or anything. It's just like, you know, what was listening to American music, all the bands she listens to are from South Korea or they're from Norway. And, you know, it's this increasingly diverse world. And I think that's going to come to America increasingly. I think America's still thinking about this as, oh, what does it look like to have a multicultural, internal, national debate? But what does it look like when you're just one player in a vast chessboard of different pieces playing a game on the global stage? So when you're 300 million people out of 7 point something billion people, how does that change the equation? Yes. And then suddenly nobody would have predicted this. Nobody in January would have said all the borders will be shut down. International travel will grind to a halt. The economy will collapse, et cetera, et cetera. And so now, you know, people are talking about deglobalization, which perhaps we can come back to uh, toward the end. But I want to probably my favorite episode and perhaps the favorite thing that I listened to in 2019 last year was the episode on this cultural moment where you unpacked secular salvation, the secular salvation schema. So John has done this, John Mark has done this on this uh, podcast a couple of months ago, 
he tried to, he said he was trying to channel you, paraphrase you. I would love for you to unpack that for us. Give us the the five minute version of secular salvation, because I would, I think it has disrupted that paradigm as well and would love to explore that with you. Yeah. I mean, one of my theories is that when we speak about post-Christian culture, a lot of people initially spoke about it as, oh, we've returned to this, you know, ground zero, that the slate has been wiped clean and, you know, we're back in the first century um, and where no one's ever heard the story of Jesus. But really, post-Christian culture is advancing some of the elements of Christian culture, but minus the lordship of Jesus Christ. I say it's the kingdom without the king. And that plays out in multiple different ways. But one way I realize that it plays out is in particularly this individual life plan or trajectory, which we expect, um, which actually has contours of the Christian story over it, but it's actually secularized. So, uh, you know, if you think about the Christian story, the Christian gospel is that humans are fallen and uh, we've rebelled against God. Uh, cast out of the garden, always wandering east of Eden. Um, And then, you know, we have Jesus who comes into the world, incarnates, dies on the cross. And when we bow to him and follow him, accept him into our lives, you know, he then offers us salvation. So there's this secularized version of that. And it sort of looks like there's some kind of brokenness. Hmm. Um, And there's almost multiple versions of the secular story. But I'll just give you like, let's give you the most probably popular one. Uh, You know, here is um, this particular guy and he's grown up in a really tough circumstances and it's been really difficult. And, but then he, despite everyone else in his community struggling, he looked and he saw something inside of him and it was a self-belief. And there was a talent linked to that. Maybe he's a musician, maybe he's a basketball player, maybe he's an incredible architect or an IT entrepreneur. And so cutting out the voices around him, he then commits to this discipline and he cherishes his, his thing and he has these breaks because he believes in himself. And then eventually he is gloried as he reaches this point of achievement and gains fame and ascends to this position of sainthood and glorification as he's recognized for the incredible person that he really is, gains the adulation of his peers. And then he appears on Oprah's couch and tells this story and all clap and, and smile and cry as he's followed the secular salvation story. Mm. Um, so there's this sense where there's a redemptive, there was a book called The Redemptive Self, which said that what you know, the United States has done is it's taken this Christian story, but then it's applied it to lives. And there's a secular running of that, which yet yeah, mirrors the Christian story of redemption. So the fall is often obscurity. The fall in this version may be hiddenness, it may be brokenness, it may be addiction, it may be poverty, um, but the salvation is not outside of ourselves. It's actually truly believing in who you are. Uh, it's truly loving yourself and it's gaining some sort of, um, you know, often it's talent and achievement and then achieving that and then becoming almost a saint, a secular saint in your, your field. Sainthood is celebrity when you're recognized by your peers. Um, there's another one I'll just quickly share as well, which is almost a another story where it's it's almost subverts the Christian one, which is the person who grew up perhaps in a religious family, which was strict, and maybe they grew up in a in a fundamentalist Christian or Hasidic Jewish or Islamic, and and then they slowly strip themselves of those things, which is like sin, and then they discovered who they really are, and running away from those strictures of culture, 
they then walked into this experience and they were able to taste all the fruit of the garden for themselves. And now they live in this happiness and live in this kingdom of God on heaven, heaven that's come down to earth. And they, they travel and they experience everything that the world has to offer. There's some versions of the secular salvation schema. And what is the reward in secular salvation where you've removed God, you've got the kingdom, but you've got no king? What would uh, a typical reward be? I would say adulation or celebrity. Another one would be pleasure living a life which is continually pleasurable. I would say they're the two main ones. And the, the other lifestyle entrepreneurship old. thing is an expression Absolutely. of that. Right. Um, and perhaps glory, power, and knowledge. Right. And, and I think, correct me, this may not have been you, but I'm pretty sure I heard you at one time point say it's freedom as well. The freedom to do what you want, when you want, where you want, how you want. And one of the reasons I thought that was so salient now is what have we lost over the last 30 days? We've lost our freedom. We've lost autonomy. We've lost um, mobility. We've lost predictability. We've, you know, not only seen net worth drop or income drop or unemployment rise, uh, but that whole idea that I am the master of my own fate seems to have been just snatched from us overnight. I'd love to hear you, first of all, comment on that and secondly, expand on that or, or, or correct that. If, uh, if I'm taking it in the wrong direction. No, absolutely. I, I you know, realized that what Western culture was doing primarily, and increasingly non-Western culture, was offering us more freedom. Right. So to be a human, you actually do need some level of freedom. So, for example, someone who is currently living in North Korea, they need more freedom. Someone yes. who's in yeah. prison you know, for, their, for their political beliefs um, with a you know, dictatorship needs more freedom. Um, but there's a point where freedom goes into beyond where there's an appropriate level into uh, almost a, ty- a tyranny of freedom. So humans need freedom, but we also need community and we, you know, a social fabric in which to live, to find ourselves in other people and to be loved and be known by them. But also we need meaning. So what the West has done is it's delivered thus a lopsided version of those needs where we have increasing freedom. We can download what we want on Netflix. We can, as you said, travel where we want. You know, we can take a, a cheap flight to Bali. You know, we can uh, reinvent ourselves in any way we want. We can, you know, have incredible freedom, unseen like before in human history. But at the same time, the increasing household across the West, the dominant household is moving from, it went from extended family to nuclear family. Now it's becoming one person. And, you know, and that's not a slam on people who find themselves living by themselves, because many I know who don't want to do that. But the, the kind of trajectory that this leads to, and even in places like Japan and South Korea, which are less, less Western per se, but still following this trajectory, uh, they now talk about loner culture. Um, but then what we're missing is meaning. I think one of the reasons that perhaps before the COVID-19 moment, we saw this reconnection with politics um, was that a lot of our religious impulses we're pushing into politics because we're actually looking for meaning um, or we're looking for it in tribalism. Um, so we were hungry for community. We had too much freedom. And when you've got too much freedom, you become dizzy. So the way I say this is, you know, if you wanted to buy uh, dishwashing detergent um, and you go to the store and if there's just one, just say you live in Bulgaria during the communist period, and it's just one and sometimes it's not there, you're going to be more happier when you've got a choice of three. Right, mm-hmm. but so that's good. But then, when there is seventeen hundred in front of you on that supermarket shelf, you're standing there going, "Which one do I buy?" 
And actually, you get what what uh, is called uh, Schwartz called uh, choice anxiety. So a lot of the what I call ambient anxiety in our culture that people were struggling with actually was because we had too much freedom, too many options, and we were constantly in our heads trying to work out how to navigate this without any one offering a way forward. Um, I think this is you're 100 right. I think this is being profoundly disrupted in this moment. And that world was a world where it was shaped by consumerism and even hyper-consumerism, which was all about wants. So not only did it offer you ways to, uh, you know, fulfill your wants, it expanded your wants. I studied advertising. Part of advertising was to help people realize it's a product that they never knew they wanted. We're going to make you want it. And we're going to do that by actually offering you, it's going to make you more glorious. It's going to make you more powerful. It's going to make you more sexually attractive. It's going to make you more, more secure. So Western culture has been generating wants. And I've come to the realization, and I've been, before this happened, I had this sort of moment of self-criticism where I began to just ask the question in the last three years, Mark, what if you're being a chaplain to the kingdom of wants? Whoa. And what if you're doing Christianity for people who want to move to Melbourne and be cool and have all their wants, but they still want to have some meaning, they still want some Jesus, but you're putting a Jesus varnish, and we're offering ways to try and spiritually form them, but the ways that are forming them are not powerful enough to actually undo the much more powerful cultural forming of the kingdom of wants. Where we have flipped to in the last 30 days is we have now moved from a want world to a need world. Matt Stoller, who's an um, economist, he wrote this tweet, and it was something like, it was more looking at economics, and he said, he was early on to predicting what would happen with COVID-19, and he said, we're about to head into shortages on the supermarket shelf. I'm looking at this going, I think he's being a bit alarmist. I remember the moment going to the supermarket only a couple of weeks ago with my daughter, who's 12, and us walking in, it was like panic in the supermarket. Uh, there's a guy from our church who's the manager of that particular store. And we're talking, he's ripping open boxes with a box cutter. He's putting up stuff. He's like, this is intense. This guy walks up to us, this American guy. He's like, man, this is like Moscow 1954 when you know they ran out of food. <laughs> and I'm staying there having this conversation. I'm like, my daughter is seeing something I've never seen in my life, which is shortage on the shelves. I never have known a moment where the shelves aren't full. There's more stuff available. And I realized my daughter's going to grow up understanding shortage. Now my grandfather who lived through the Great Depression, he knew shortage. He lived differently. Um, the lady across the road who lives across from us, who's Latvian and lived under the communists and the Soviets, who recycles everything, not because she's a hipster, but because that's, that's how uh, you know, she learned to live. She understands need. Many of us don't understand need. So the pivot for many leaders is so much of our ministry is based around providing services, sometimes religious services, and I'm, this is I'm self-critiquing as much as oh, I'm yeah. being here, is... What does it now look like to pivot to people who need, who spiritually need, who don't have a job, who don't know how to provide, who are like, I'm running myself ragged here, doing Zoom meetings with clients to keep my job going while homeschooling my kids, while trying to put a lasagna in the, in the oven all at the same time. Uh, that's a huge fundamental change, which is undermining the secular salvation scheme. People are realizing their mortality and their fragility and that the system is fragile. If I could just add one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a moment just before this happened. We had the Australian bushfires. Yeah. Um, so we had the bushfires. So we had people wearing masks because of the Australian bushfires, which is huge. And our generation's pastor, Sue, um, uh, we had a number of people at church who went on their summer vacations to the beach and then got, like, they had to be, you know, evacuate. And um, there were people stuck in some towns. And Sue was telling me she was near a town. She had to leave. And the town above her 
And this is Australia where we've got nationalized healthcare. We've got a very good government. We have everything provided for us. We, we didn't even go into a recession during the GFC because our government managed it so well. The town that was above where she was at, they ran out of food in 48 hours, there's looting. And I was talking about this, like we just don't think about this with Australia. And I, I, there's a sense where so much of the questioning and spiritual, like I believe that post-Christianity is able to survive when it has a number of social things keeping it in place. When you believe that, you know, Amazon's still going to get that parcel to you. <laughs> when you can go to that cafe, you can move to Paris if you want to, because the borders are still open. A number of those supporting structures are now starting to collapse or look fragile, and that's going to open up a massive spiritual hunger. Mm. How, that, that is so rich, Mark. How Are there other ways in which our predominant worldview for the last 40, 50 years is being dismantled before our eyes? Are there other threats, other like, you know, the bubble? Because I think you're right. You know, I think of people who are lifestyle entrepreneurs on Instagram or on the internet. And I'm like, wow, that's a tough message right now, man, because the whole thing was based on do what you want, when you want, how you want, with who you want. And I'm like, all of a sudden overnight, that world collapsed. How else is this challenging? And even, I think you're right. Most of us, I mean, you know, I became a Christian in Canadian culture. You became a Christian in Australian culture. Uh, Most of our audience is American. They became Christians in American culture. And it's very difficult to disentangle your worldview from your faith view. Uh, But that is being done right now in real time. So any other ways in which some of the core beliefs we may have even thought were Christianity uh, turned out to be cultural? Yeah, I mean, so many. I mean, I'll try and think of a a few. Like, um, I think what this is doing is it's, you know, I think there was a fear that when this first happened, like, oh, man, everyone's going to go live streaming and this is just going to be a boon to cultural Christians who just want to sit on their couches with a packet of chips and a beer and their tracksuit, you know, their track pants and just, you know, like, is this the future? I I realise those people, they're not going to watch. Bingo. They're gone. And, and, you know, and I've had to be adaptive, you know, like I wasn't a huge fan, you know, I'm a big embodied person and, you know, like that. But I'm like, man, you've got to adapt, Mark. Like this is now, this is a wartime situation. You're thinking peacetime situation. Hmm. And I actually think those people are disappearing. What I'm seeing is, you know, if you're going to join our live stream at, at, you know, you actually have to proactively do that because there's a lot of other things on that channel that you can flick across to. And I can and, leave without you ever knowing I was there. Yep. You're exactly. Right. Exactly. So I think what's happened is we've got like churches had these three layers up the top is leadership. You know, most of the people listening to this, are, you know, leaders and, and we lead by an example. We cast a vision, we communicate, but then we had this middle rung of, um, services and large gatherings where we could get people. You can see who's in the room. You get a sense of what's going on and you can communicate. Like I, I'm, I'm realizing in Zoom meetings, I can't do a staff meeting like I can do when they're in the room because I can, I mean, I'm a big visual person. I pick up people's emotions and stuff like that. I, I read the context. So it's hard for me. I'm looking at screens and I'm like, is that person, you know, they're looking away. Yeah. Um, so, we, but we, so we didn't realize how much leverage we had in large gatherings and services. Um, then down the bottom was households. This is where people live their every days when they leave your big service, when they've had that moment at the end of the service, that transcendent thing, the worship's pumping, there's been a great message. Maybe there's a response. Maybe people are, are buzzing and talking in the shared spaces afterwards, but then they go back to their homes. Now what the research has been telling us is that's the hardest place to actually get people to follow Jesus in the orderliness of their lives. Um, and, you know, if you look at, say, Dave Kinnaman's um, 
um, you know, research around faith in exiles and both, both know Dave, you know, what that's saying is look, just with the emerging generations, but I think this is true of, you know, outside the millennials is that a large percentage of people sitting in your services are habitual Christians. Yes. who come and they're sitting in your big gatherings and then maybe you're at your men's conference, maybe they're in your worship service, maybe they're sitting in that seminar, but actually their lives are not reflecting biblical truth. They don't even believe all the things that we would say are really stack standard, just basic Christian stuff. So we could have been getting a false feedback loop where actually we're oh man, it's the service is packed, brilliant. All these people are coming to my conference, awesome. But then what's happening in their homes? When the doors are shut, who are they when no one's looking at them? How are they talking to each other in their marriages? What are they downloading? What are they doing? How are they cycling their kids? That middle run, that leverage point is gone. Right. And we're, in a sense, flying in the dark. And I know that I had this early warning moment when I was in Malaysia, just as this was, was all hitting. And there was a guy at this conference, and I, I didn't speak to him directly, but I heard this secondhand. And he was from Mongolia. And Mongolia shut down a lot of churches. And and this Mongolian pastor was like, I don't know where my people have gone. We're doing live stream, but I don't know where my people are. And that scared me. As a pastor, I'm like, man, that's real. So a lot of pastors listening to this are probably like, where are my people? I'm, I'm, tr- I'm seeing the stats on YouTube Live or Facebook Live, but who are these people? And where's that guy gone? And where's that family gone? And I realized that what we're actually doing is this, this moment is we're handing across leadership to them. I have lost a bunch of leadership at this point in time. We all have. And that leadership happens in that space. Where I can every week, I've got them in a room. I can talk to them. That's gone. And there's a commissioning moment. And I believe God maybe I don't believe God's called this pandemic, but God, Romans tells us, God uses things for good. I believe that God's going to do a judo move on the work of the enemy here. And that actually part of this could be strengthening those households. Yes. Because now I've got people saying, okay, how do I disciple my kids? How do I do this? Okay, we're now praying because we assumed our jobs were safe. They're not anymore. So I believe that God is doing this this moment in this, this, this time to strengthen those things. So I believe this could be an acceleration which actually subverts cultural Christianity. Now, it's not going to go away, but it could subvert well, let's actually say subvert habitual Christianity. Mm-hmm. The whole consumer thing that this is a product I consume versus something I actually have committed to. Totally, um, yeah. Mark, I listened to a million things like you have over the last month, and uh, this may have been you, it may not have been, but one of the sources uh, said that the nations who responded best to the crisis so far in terms of being able to eliminate the risk to the virus are often the Asian nations. And for a few reasons, uh, not all of them great. One, authoritarian government. Number two, a high sense of honor. Number three, a deep sense of loyalty to community. And so the government locks you down and you stay in and you don't rebel. And the nations that have had the hardest time with this are the westernized nations, the nations that prize individual freedom because they're like, well, you can't make me stay in or I'm, I'm the exception to the rule. And it's been very interesting to see that play out over the last few weeks in the infection rate and the death rate. And even what I see on social casually, I would say that, yeah, that's not completely unreasonable. Do you have any thoughts or comments on that as it uh, relates to our ethic and how we think of ourselves? Yeah. So just give a bit of nuance behind that. So like what we're seeing is there's a cultural memory with SARS that Hong Kong, Singapore, China had. So in a sense, what we're seeing is the response to that. Um, uh, and I want to, I guess, nuance it that, you know, there's a variety of countries in Asia. Um, Cambodia, for example, is not dealing with this well because their authoritarian government's links to China was denying that it was happening. 
Um, uh, but what we're seeing is, I would say, countries with a higher level of radical individualism, where, hey, man, I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it. Now is how, how you behave is no longer this thing of you. You know, there's that whole saying, you do you. Like, no, no, I don't want you, you do, you know, like you live your life how you want it. I do not want people in my neighborhood, you doing you. If you, I mean, there was a, there was a party like about three weeks ago before, like Australia's quite shut down now. And there was a large party I could hear several houses away. And I normally like, oh, whatever. They're having a few beers, playing music loud. Hopefully they shut it all off by 11. You know, I'm, I'm on my back porch. I'm like, man, these people need to stop. I'm like, do I ring the police? And I, I'm not because of the noise. Like, this is dangerous now. So we're, what, what this is doing is that a myth of radical individualism where we can just pursue our own wills has now been exposed, that we live in an interconnected world. Like I, you know, for me, it's not even the question of globalization versus anti-globalization. It's the fact as humans, uh, we're intimately connected to the rest of the world, our lives connected to others. And this is showing us how that is true. So I would say that nations which have a, a better value on that um, uh, you know, who are willing to, for the sake of the team, you know, take a hit. Um, but that's not a message that many in, in parts of the West. The other thing I would say too is I, I wonder whether this is going to subvert the West in that we now have Western countries on very different trajectories. Um, I did a Danish podcast um, yesterday um, and, and Denmark and Australia are actually doing okay because we have a very different political system. And we've talked about the West as this broad category, but now the difference. So Sweden and Denmark are going completely different paths. Sweden is like, let's go herd immunity. Let's open everything up. Uh, Denmark shut everything down. And Denmark and Sweden, which looked very similar to each other, could look very different in three years. Um, the Can United you drill States down Canada, on that a little bit more? Yes. Um, so, for example, Denmark, um, the prime minister there, she shut everything down quite early. Uh, Sweden decided to just, let's just keep going. Yeah, I read that about Sweden. Basically, you can shop, the kids are going to school, and they're going to try to immunize everyone by spreading the disease, right? Yes. So, so Which basically is surprising what that for means, Sweden. Yes. But this is even showing that we look at our oh, Scandinavia, they're all the same. Scandinavia is quite different. You know, when you look at the Danes versus the Swedes, there's actually differences there. And we've sort of known that. But what this is doing, this is... Um, this is showing the, the great differences in actual cultures and political systems. So we would say, oh, the West, like I would be on podcasts, always talking about the West. Um, there is significant uh, uh, trajectories that different countries will go on. The United Kingdom early on went for herd immunity. Then they realized the modeling showed that they're going to lose half a million people. They pulled back. Um, but now the United Kingdom is in a really difficult position with the amount of deaths they're having. The United States took a very different tack to this than you know, what other countries did because of political culture. Canada's taking a different track. And even within countries, Quebec is, I think, you know, closing some of its borders to, to other provinces. And you're seeing this really interesting thing where the decisions of your local government now are life and death for you. Yes. So all of a sudden, I'm watching press conferences with our premier, that's a version of our governor. Um, I'm watching that. I watched a press conference with the premier of Tasmania, I would never watch that in a million years before, but I'm like, he's going to shut him. That's the state below us. Like, yeah. what are they going to do? You know, so all of a sudden, what this means is we've become very local. At the same time, we're having this weird internet conversation. And if you track this out, like Australia, um, you know, we're keeping our new infections quite low because we've responded a particular way. 
you know, countries' healthcare, countries' social welfare schemes. There's a bunch of Western countries which are paying people now almost the universal basic income um, who have lost their jobs. There's other Western countries that haven't. So the, the trajectories forward of those two different paths mean that the West is going to look very diverse uh, as this plays out in the next few years. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I've been tracking the numbers uh, multiple times a day. And, you know, I spent a lot of time on both sides of the border. I'm a Canadian who spent about a third of my life. Sometimes it felt like half in the U.S. just working with leaders. And, you know, I have uh, a green card for the U.S. as well, which is not very actionable right now. But those are other stories. Um, But I look at us and we have half the infection rate per capita and a quarter of the death rate. And I think part of that is the Canadian government acted about a week sooner and Canadians kind of went, okay, we'll go inside. Whereas if I'm using social media as a measure and the stories I'm reading as a measure in the US, it was like, ah, we're going to go to the beach. Now, we still have some of that here, but it's really, really interesting to track. And, you know, one of the other comments I saw is uh, there was no global response. There was a local response. There was supposed to be a global response. But the world leaders did not call each other. They all acted to protect their tribe and whatever they saw best. And even in the U.S., there's 50 different responses. In Canada, there's 10 plus three territories, right? And you have all of your states, which are different, and cities, which are different. Melbourne would be different than Sydney, different state as well. So it's really interesting that we've gone very, very hyper-local, which a year ago I would have said was irrelevant at this point. We are uniculture. Wow. Absolutely. So extrapolate a couple of years. What are the implications? Yes. Um, so you know, like what? Ha- so the, uh, you know, I saw one thing postulated on Twitter with travel. So for example, uh, if you look this out, like what happens if Singapore and New Zealand get down to zero with testing, or five cases, and then all of a sudden they go, we're going to open flights between us, but then they're going to fly over countries which are red zones. Um, what happens if Canada and Australia actually get okay on this and I can jump back on an Air Canada flight and come and visit you, but I can't stop in Mexico, the United States, because they've still got huge infection rates. Mm-hmm. Um, so you could actually have two levels of countries here. Um, and to take it even further, what happens, say, in the United States, where California has had a shelter in place long, law longer, um, but then you've got other states which are not doing that at all, and you could have you know, regional areas where maybe you could go down to California, but you can't go to you know, Mississippi. Um, so that's going to provide this really weird thing. Now, the, well, the world's gone to that before. If you look at the late antiquity or the dark ages, it went very, very local. But we're going to have this weird moment where it's super local. You might not be able to travel. I mean, I, I've read some predictions from people. I started going to like airline <laughs> people who predicted the airline industry. You know, there's some predictions that we might not see international travel for two to three years. Yeah. Come back like it was. I'm actually preparing for my next two to three years as though it's going to be a fraction of what it has been in the past. Totally. And and you think about what that means for missions organizations, for, for NGOs. For, you know, it's, that's it's just an absolute game changer. Um, what that means for hub cities as well is going to be a changer. So, for example, we've had hub cities, London, New York, Paris, Hong Kong, Tokyo, Singapore have done well in globalization. Um, and regions haven't done as well because manufacturing then went into the supply chain. But hub cities now, someone put up a tweet the other day saying that no one's meeting in the New York Times building, basically, but the quality of the paper hasn't changed. So is there a point where their board of directors go, hang on, we just saved how many millions on this big you know, flagship building when we could just do this remotely? Or you look at companies going, hang on, we're still fly- you know, doing stuff and no one's flying around. We saved $2 million on flights. 
So you could see a move away from hub cities and a more localized thing. But then where we're connecting, like you and I are, still with the world. So super local. But then uh, the, someone said it's land and the cloud. <laughs> That's a great metaphor. So you're, you're in Box Hill, which, by the way, has great dumplings. I remember from the last time I was there. <laughs> Rowan Dredge took me there. And... Uh, yes. I'm in, you know, north of Toronto and you're right. Yeah, we're hyper connected. I want to get into um, some predictions and I know these are early days, but when you're looking at trends, it is smart, I think, to look ahead as much as you can. But I want to ask you a couple of questions. This one, what's the danger no one's talking about right now? There's got to be some stuff that just is not getting enough daylight that is on your mind or heart. What do you think the danger is no one's talking about? I mean, it's getting a little, um, a little coverage if you look beneath the surface. But but my concern is that we're seeing a profound reshaping of the global order. You know, I, I see China has done this incredible thing where, you know, there was that series Chernobyl and six, seven weeks ago, everyone's saying, is this Xi Jinping's Chernobyl moment? Now people are saying, is this the Chernobyl moment for Britain or the United States? And China is opening things up again. And um, China is like, well, we can start the supply chain again. Who wants to join into us? Um, and, uh, you know, there's a moment where, you know, you, you look, there's two, I think it's two aircraft carriers that are incapacitated for the United States military with coronavirus outbreaks. You know, there's people looking at this stuff. You're seeing a profound um, Saudi-Russian uh, oil war happening at the moment. Uh, Turkey is repositioning. Um, there is an element that some authoritarian states can reposition in this moment. And some of the, the that is going with that is that there is a moment where we're going to move to increased surveillance in the world. So one of the ways that we can deal with this is actually through testing. And it could be that, hey, you can come to Australia in 2021 because all of a sudden we come up with a test which says that you're clear, but then your genetic data is on your passport. Yes. Um, you know, there's, there's talk of this. Okay, great. Um, but then well, how is that then used in the future um, you know, going forward? So if you look at, say, um, you know, I read Shoshana Zuboff's book on, um, you know, all the digital stuff and how the surveillance is happening now and how so much of our lives are being bought and sold. But she makes the point that a lot of that happened because there was all these um, restrictions in place about our digital privacy. But then what changed them was 9-11, mm -hmm. when all of a sudden governments were like, hang on, we've got this war on terror, so we need to change the rules of it here. Um, and if you look at how the world changed for 9-11, how that changed travel, you look at TSA in the United States, you look at biometric passports, you know, we started putting our fingers down when we, you know, got to a customs desk. Um, that will now move to biology. Um, now, the interesting thing as well is that, um, you know, N.T. Wright said something really interesting the other day. He said, what Christians in the West who are experiencing this don't realize is pandemics are a normal part of human history. Yes. And, uh, you know, I was on a podcast with... Um, Justin Brilly and, and uh, there's an expert on there around virology and, and, and she was speaking about, you know, like we've had, this is SARS 2.0, you know, so basically the Spanish flu 2.0 is coming. Hmm. Um, this, what, this will not be the first one that this is coming. And someone put up on Twitter the other day, like there was a 2017 Time magazine about the next pandemic. There's the Bill Gates, you know, TED talk about, hey, this is coming. Um, you know, there's that term, a black swan, which is an event that no one predicts. And Nicholas Nassim Taleb, who coined the term black swan, actually said, this is not a black swan because we knew this was coming. The experts were telling us we just didn't prepare. It's, not a, it's only a black swan if you don't see it coming. So I think you'll see biosecurity as an increasing part of life. But biosecurity with increased surveillance, you know, I was reading that um, 
China is um, getting some of its, they have these free enterprise types or these zones of trade in some of the countries like Cambodia and so on. They were now sort of saying to the workers in those places, hey, we want to get you to sign a form that is saying that you're not going to gather in religious gatherings because religious gatherings are transmitters of this thing. Can you please sign this form? There was an op-ed here in Australia, which was basically saying, um, you know, because the outbreaks, the outbreak in in New York State was from a synagogue. The outbreak in Iran was from the religious city of Qom. There was uh, in France and Switzerland, it came from a charismatic megachurch conference. Um, There is a case that I've heard some people in an op-ed's making like, hang on, we've got to now regulate how people gather. So I'm concerned that you know, some of the pushback we could see from particular authoritarian regimes who are now looking to influence things beyond their borders um, in an international world that that could grow. That's one thing I'm concerned about. Yeah, I was thinking, you know, we may be at the uh, stage at some point. I don't know why these thoughts pop into your head, but next time you get on a plane, you get your temperature taken before you're allowed to board, things like that, that, you know, they do the little forehead scan and away you go. Well, uh, we could talk at the metal level all night, all day. Uh, I want to switch because you're also leading a church and your Rebuilders podcast is a beautiful oscillation between the hyper-theoretical and the hyper-practical. And you got a lot of church leaders, a lot of business leaders listening who are trying to figure out, yeah, I am working from home. My kids are hanging off me. I'm trying to run a remote organization. Nothing prepared us for this. You've got a few pillars that you're using at your church to help guide you through this. Can you just share what those are briefly for leaders? Yeah. So, so we just sort of came, I felt like we need, there's so much information that we just need a few pillars to, to, to gather around. And so I just came up with four, um, which was, the first one was adapt. Mm. Um, when you hit a crisis, you often double down on what you were doing before. And I realized this is a profound change moment. Um, I think I've studied culture enough to know, like, you know, this is a big, this is a watershed moment. So we have to adapt. Um, and there's adapting in terms of lots of people had to go completely online, but then there's also adapting in your thinking, you know, as well. You know, who's going to be making the decisions? If you look, uh, Australia currently has effectively what is like a wartime cabinet. The government in parliament is not meeting as usual. They enacted a new type of leading. Um, so we need to adapt how we lead. We need to uh, adapt. But the game of adapting must flow from you adapting how you're mentally responding to this reality. And strategy flows from that. Uh, the second thing we realize is that there's a tremendous kingdom of God moment to protect. Uh, that the next thing we had was protect. How do we protect people? The decisions that you make of chancing it, um, of like, I oh, will see how that goes. So there's, there was one moment where I've got one staff member who is just on a day a week and, and um, the rest of the time he works in a hospital. And we had this conversation in the car park and he, he essentially was saying to me, Mark, um, you know, I realize I'm about to probably get dragged into this frontline battle in ICU. Um, you know, like, like in a sense, will you release me into that? You know, and it was quite sort of this emotion. He was sort of hit me for our frontline um, medical people. You know, and I was just asking questions. And he said, there was some question where I had like, oh, this person's coming in. Is it okay? Like, this was early days. If they're not feeling well, is that okay? And he said, Mark, in the medical world, we don't presume there's a maybe. It's either this person definitely doesn't have something or we're going to do everything to protect you that you probably do have it. And that flipped my thinking. Like wow. pre-pandemic thinking is like, oh, maybe. Let's give it a week. Let's think about it. Let's be cautious. This is like go hard and go early. So you've got to go hard and go early to protect your people. So protection now becomes this key pillar. I think the church is called to protect the vulnerable. Yeah. And we're so used to doing that in an embodied sense. 
But what if the biggest gift is the kingdom of God is actually to not go out your front door at the moment? It's so bizarre, but, you know, like to protect people from infection. Can you drill down a little more on that? Because there was that one weekend in March where for a lot of leaders listening, it was discretionary. You could open, you could not open. And there was still a lot of denial, like this is overblown. More people die of the flu than are going to die from COVID. Come on, what is this? You can't do my liberty. We decided to close physical locations and go digital. I believe you made the same decision. Can you explain why, in your view, it's important for leaders to go first in the name of protecting and actually be more cautious? Yes. I think, I think the first thing is, I, I, to be honest, it was in a phone call with my dad. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were like, maybe we could go ahead. This is coming. I thought I had seen it earlier because I'd been in, in Singapore uh, sorry, in, in Malaysia, you know, and they were doing like the testing on heads when you're going to certain buildings, the temperature, they were doing these sort of, is it HEPA, I think, or like, you know, these like infrared cleansing of things. So I'd, I'd had an early sense of where this was going to go. But we were like, oh man, maybe we meet next week. And just, I just realized how much as leaders, we, you don't want to be reactive and impulsive, you know. And um, I, I had this conversation with my dad where my, my parents are in their 70s. Both my, my, my parents have had some health issues. And my dad rang me and he said, look, I just want to, he comes to our church and said, look, Mark, I just want to let you know, we've made the personal decision. We've been wrestling with this all week. Um, you know, we know you probably will meet this Sunday, but we've decided we can't meet um, because we've just got to protect our thing. And, and for me, that was when it was real. It went from like, I'm saying, hang on, you've been wrestling this all week. And, and then I began to hear the stories of, hey, I mean, like younger people who may have asthma or people with heart conditions who are wrestling. And I just thought, I can't do this. Like, I can't. Like, there are people looking like at me as a leader. Like, I'll come, Mark, if you think this is okay. Like, and at that moment, it wasn't just like, oh, let's just see how this plays out. Like, I had to err on the side of hyper caution. Mm. And I thought about it. I thought, I go a week early. And you know what? Some people think I'm, I'm reactive. So what? Yep. We do one service where we're on online, we're on YouTube. What do I lose? You know, someone thinks I'm, you know, and someone, I put, you know, I had people online like, oh, you're overreacting. This is crazy. But imagine, you know, like there was a church in Sydney which met that week and there was an outbreak, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, imagine if, if you lost people at, at your church. Like, I just thought, I, this is different. So I realized there was a different strategic decision making. Um, and I think we said it off air before, like there was that Nicholas Nassim, I think it was Nicholas Nassim Taleb quote where he said, um, in a in a crisis, it's better to panic a little early than panicking when you realise that you didn't panic early enough. Yes, and you know, I just I, I read that. I thought, okay, well, that's it. Or we're 100%. not going this week, guys. And I'm um, always, yeah. you know, what was so paradigm shifting for me is I'm the guy who never cancels. I'm the guy who, if the roads are open, we're open. I've never. I'm talking to Australia, going, guy's name's Phil, super leader. I'm like, I never cancel. I've never canceled anything, but. You know, and he was there a day later. It was just the time zone difference between our countries. And that was so bizarre for me to be pulling out and to think I'm being unfaithful. Like, I just don't have enough faith. But it's it's a big flip in a crisis that none of us have been through before. Okay, so that's number two, protect. Number three? Um, yeah, so the, the, the next one was respond. How do we respond at this point of time? So, like, how do we respond in this moment? How do we be the hands and feet of Jesus? So, in a sense, the landscape has changed, and how we were responding six months ago is not how we respond now. All of a sudden, we've got people who are going to lose jobs. We've got people who are going to be isolated. 
you know, how do we as a church respond? We've adapted, but now how do we respond to the new need that's going to be in our midst? The last one was lead. I realized that wartime leadership is completely different to peacetime leadership. Um, Winston Churchill, for all his faults, and you could write a books on it, and I'm not saying he's the ultimate leader to look to, but what was interesting is Churchill was a wartime leader who basically got, you know, lost the job once Britain went into peace. There are certain types of people who, who, you know, strange times often create strange leaders. And so I realized that I had to lead differently. I had to lead my team differently. That more now was about spiritual authority. The messages that people wanted to hear were different. Uh, I just noticed that podcasts, uh, I saw some stats that podcasts are radically dropping because people are not multitasking um, at the moment in listenership. But what's gone up is any podcast which helps you deal with, with coronavirus is going up. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I realized that. It's, so there's an element. We had to refit our delivery mechanisms around just being online. But then I also had to not just change the delivery content. I had to change the content. Yes. Uh, you know, and it was a d- totally different form of communication that needed to happen. So how do we then lead and lead with spiritual authority in this moment? With them, you know, there's messages now that look trite from yesterday. <laughs> you know, um, yeah. And look, you know, I, I just there was one moment where I saw it was a moment when it's like everyone was realizing, like half the world had realized and half the world hadn't. And this is honestly not a slam on this person, but I was like looking at my Instagram. You know, like it has like the little stories of different people and. And, you know, there were leaders like speaking into it. And there was this, this leader who was just doing some sort of funny thing or something. And I just saw this and I just thought, man, that, that like, it's like, that is the past era. Yes. And that's yeah. not to say fun will go away. But, you know, as, as you're being bombed in the blitz, you know, there's certain messages that you don't give. Then people want to hear the leader, you know, will fight them on the beaches speech at that point in time. I think that was a really good framework. And I think what uh, one of the things I appreciate about your voice, appreciate about your voice is it's beautifully theoretical and yet hyper-practical because you got a real church you're leading. Uh, I want to ask you about weekend services. So in many ways, we're kind of programmed to broadcast and we have this weekend event. How do you think weekend services or our digital ministry is going to be different from simply live streaming what used to happen in a room on Sunday? That's fluid as we speak. So we're recording this just to timestamp uh, this interview at the beginning of April. So by the time it comes out in a couple of weeks, we pivoted our whole podcast too to just deal with the crisis leadership because you're right, people, that's what people want to hear about. So appreciate you making yourself available. But um, so as of April 2nd, when we're recording this, how how are you pivoting your services or have you done that? Or what have you seen that makes you think, huh, this could be the future? Yeah, I think it's interesting. Like, what one theory I've had is that it's so weird because we've gone hyper local. So the global travel network is now hyper local. But then we've also got this internet network, you know. And you know, the great Canadian Marshall McLuhan, um, you know, spoke about this this new stage that will come, where basically we'll be communicating across frontiers and essentially called it the global village. So it's weird, like we're, hope, we're in our village, but then we've got the global village. And we've also got this church global village. And what I saw fascinating happening over the first weeks of this was there was the panic, but then often, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. And I saw people learning from each other. I'm texting, oh, what'd you guys do? Are you pre-recording your sermons? Are you doing them live? Hang on, we're doing this prayer thing. Oh, we're using Zoom in this way. And what I saw was uh, this crowd sourcing moment, this crowd 
you know, and I, I come up with this line. So the next renewal is going to be crowdsourced because we're all going to be watching and learning together as we're scrambling, which creates a, an, an urgency and importance. So many great inventions actually come in wartime because people just have to take these risks. So I believe that I don't know exactly where it's going to go, but I do notice that there is a greater need for leadership. People are wanting to be led. Just I'll see you on Sunday and then I'll get along with my life and catch you next Sunday. That's changing. Um, I was talking to a friend um, just uh, in Europe and he was saying he's shocked because he was doing the morning, the Sunday service, and then he's doing this midweek thing, which is literally him in a lounge chair with a glass of wine, teaching from scriptures and praying for people. And he's like, that's getting heaps more hits than the Sunday service. Like, how do I process this? You know, so, you know, I, it's interesting when, when John and Charles Wesley's Wesleyan renewal happens, a lot of that began when they switched to this new reality that people had been stuck in this parish system where they stayed in place and they had the service, almost always Anglican in that context in Britain, and they had the Sunday sermon. And then they discovered that the tumult of the Industrial Revolution where people were moved and social life was disrupted, that they were actually looking for something midweek. So the beginnings of the, the uh, Methodist you know, renewal happened when they actually started these midweek societies and they would preach but then people would get into small groups and pray and keep each other to accounts so that was actually driven by this adaptation that happened because of this new social environment so i i I predict that prayer is coming to the forefront in new ways i'm seeing churches doing online prayer in ways i've never seen before because that's what in the from the want prayer goes from an option to a need um so i think we're actually going to see almost the more whole of week i i was for 10 years with the salvation army the salvation army had had a whole variety of events that would happen during the week for people who were trying to find a new social fabric because they're coming out of addiction or they're coming out of extreme poverty in, in you know 19th century Britain. I just think, I don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but I think you're right, that we're going to see a really different landscape of what we're offering people from, hey, if we can get you for an hour on Sunday and get you to your kid's football game, we've done well, to now all that stopped. So there's this moment of attention. I do think there is an end point to this. Like there is a moment when the vaccine will arrive and, and life will come back to normal. So I think there's a purpose, but I think there's a deepening that will happen in this time. But it's, yeah, it's fascinating watching it all happen. Yeah. Do you think we have been too Sunday focused in our model in the past? Yeah, yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Long and short. Yes. Um, I mean, the biblical imagination of faith is a whole of life. Place. The Jewish tradition speaks of the family home as a temple. The New Testament language of us being living temples, that your individual life is a temple where you can meet with the presence of God, that your home is meant to be a temple, that these families on mission with God are temples. And I do believe, like I still am a, I can't wait to be back in a gathered room with a bunch of people. I love Same. that, you know, but you know, I think that what we do is we, we neglected those other spaces where the New Testament says that the glory of God can dwell just as it dwelt once in the temple. There's a moment here where I think that perhaps we've lost our platforms to get the presence back in those places. Ooh, that's a strong word. That's a powerful word and a convicting word. It's amazing how everything just ground to such a screeching halt. And the conversation this week is, I don't know what to do with my staff. Like, you know, there was a facilities person. How are you grappling with that right now at your church when you think about how you used to mobilize people, volunteers and staff versus perhaps what we're looking at over the next few months before things get back to some new normal? Yeah. 
it was really helpful talking to my friend um, who he lived in Beijing during SARS when it first came. Ah, and I said, Look, what was it like? Yeah. So I was, yeah. So I was like, hey, what was it like? And he said, it was six weeks of like panic and, and fear. And then it was just this ongoing drudgery and boredom. So I thought this is going to be interesting. It's going to be people who are all scrambling. People are buying toilet paper in, in two bulk, you know. And, you know, that's going to happen with my team. So I thought, like, I have to – what I need to be careful is don't let the first six weeks then define you. So in a sense, I was just like, let's get meeting. Let's just see how things are. But then let's – we need to prepare for that next long – I think it will be a long season. It could be up to 18 months where perhaps we're sort of in shelter in place and then going out a bit and coming back. So I didn't want to set my staff team and reposition them for the panic period. Yeah, um, I, I needed to to set them for what this will look like in the long term. So I did notice a division between content production and response. Uh, so I realized that as a leader, because I don't have the people in the room, there's a really important thing for me to lead. And almost I began to see it in this really interesting way. It's almost like it was funny. Like I was watching. I was watching. Um, uh, I thought I'm, gonna, I'm sick of the coronavirus. I'm just going to watch something that's different, you know. And look, I like politics. There's a there's the dramatized. Um, I think it's BBC production of Brexit, the uncivil war with Benedict Cumberbatch. And I'm watching this and to distract myself. And then they talk about you know how do you campaign? How do you reach voters? There's this definite day of election day when a decision is going to be made. And as I'm watching this, I'm like, hang on, I must feel like this now. It's like, I don't know who the voters are out there. Do I trust the polling? You know, who's watching our live stream, those stats? But do I trust the polling? What, what's happening out there? I felt like more like a campaign manager than I felt like <laughs> a pastor. And I'm watching this and I thought, yeah, there'll be a point where when on that first Sunday back, that when that night breaks, I think we're in this spiritual night, dawn will come. Yeah. How do I want my people to come back? I want them to come back stronger. So as a leader, I'm almost now like a, a politician going, here's the campaign platform. At this moment of night, go deeper. This is a moment where we've lost the service. We're commissioning you to build stronger households. So my sort of slogan I'm saying is, if we're in a campaign, what's my slogan? My slogan is, when the dawn finally breaks and the pandemic is broken and we gather in that room, come back stronger. Come back as stronger in love with Jesus come back with a stronger household where maybe your family didn't take faith that seriously, where you're now praying with your kids, where you're praying in your marriage. Maybe you live by yourself and actually instead of seeing that as loneliness, you see that as an invitation into dwelling with God and actually solitude. How do we actually come back stronger where we have a greater heart for the world? We're actually the non-Christians who are jumping onto live streams now. They actually join us on that first Sunday back. So I realized with my team, I need to sort of have a response we were out there praying with people where we're providing a bag of rice for someone who's in, in isolation, where we're dealing with the pastoral anxiety that people have lost the job, there's response. But then there's how do we then always have a campaign team to get that message out that here's, here's what we want you to build in this time. Here's our policy statements. But we're trusting you, the voters, <laughs> to turn up on election day and to step into the invitation to actually come back strong. That is a fascinating metaphor, and it really resonates. Mark, as, uh, as we kind of wind down, I want to ask you, and these are very early days, and I realize everything can change in a heartbeat, but as you're looking at the meta trends, as you're looking at the disruption that this crisis has caused, when you think about getting to the other side, what are you seeing and what should leaders be watching for? I think there's there's three three things. I think number one, there's going to be profound change in the world. Yeah. Um, 
I think, as we said, this to be divergent for different countries. Um, uh, we are not just in a pandemic, we're also in a profound economic challenge. Uh, the world was already in a significantly economic trouble that that we were at almost negative interest rates around the world. The global economy was not growing and really economists don't know what to do about that. Um, we had created demand in these areas like travel and cafes and almost this creative class that Richard Florida talked about. That's gone now. Entertainment, sports, gone. Um, so we're going to you know, face possibly a hard recession or a global depression, which could last longer than the pandemic. Um, and that's going to change things. I think that the countries, once you've been infected, like there's an element where we're not going to, the borders won't open up necessarily once the pandemic stops. There's going to be a lot of fear out there. And I don't know what that looks like. So we're going to be in a profoundly changed world. Um, technology, I think, will change things. The second thing is that a lot won't change. Hmm. We're already seeing, you know, there's a few weeks of panic and, um, uh, you know, a lot of the politicians are just doubling down on their platforms already and just trying to work a list around it. And there's still polarization in certain places. My brother just sent me this really fascinating picture of two girls in Sydney, which is absolutely deserted at Opera House, which is normally, I was there, oh, yeah. you know, earlier this year, packed with tourists, utterly deserted. But there's two teenage girls and one's posing and the other's taking a selfie of her. Um, <laughs> I thought, man, some of this stuff's just going to keep continuing. The radical individualism is still going to be here. Post-Christianity is still going to be here. Political madness is still going to be here. Um, so there's some things that will change radically, other things that won't change. What my big hope for is after we come out of a crisis, there's a sense in us to go back to normal. Hmm. My big hope is that there, God was already preparing a people before. Renewal always springs from people who go through a personal crisis. There was a bunch of people who'd gotten to the end of themselves. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, revival followed, flows from men and women who've gone to the end of themselves. That was already happening with a bunch of people. Like, man, I'm, I'm doing this 21st century radical individual thing, and it just gives me no meaning. And I'm now praying more than I ever prayed before. I, I was meeting people around the world in the last two years, many who don't have a platform, who are in hidden places. I'm like, God's preparing you for something. So God has been preparing, um, but that is now just accelerated. And I believe there's going to be a remnant in the global church who at this moment are actually going to learn the lesson, step into the invitation, um, and they're going to come back with a tenacity of faith, a spiritual resilience. They're going to learn things where they commune with God in the hidden places, where they dwell in his word, where they learn to pray, where they learn to sit in God's presence, listen to him, where they actually place their sufficiency in him. Um, I believe that in places like Canada and Australia and Scandinavia, where we've looked at this inevitable trajectory of post-Christianity, that actually God is going to renew his church. Post-Christianity will still be there. There'll be still strange things. But my hope is that when dawn breaks, that actually the church is going to come back stronger. Uh, that's what I'm going to be working with all my energy that I have in this hmm. moment to not just make my church survive, but in the crisis, actually the global church thrive. Can I ask you a question then about uh, digital? Do you think it will go back to the way it was before this broke? Or do you think it'll be this seamless stream between digital and physical gatherings? Or any thoughts on that, Mark? I think, I think there'll be two things. I think we're going to see a normalization of certain elements of um, digital stuff. You know, it could be that, you know, I look at, you know, hey, do I fly to the United Kingdom um, and have a bunch of meetings? And then I go, I can... But, 
free, I can do that on Zoom. So I think those questions are going to happen. I think a lot of churches will stay on live stream because what they're already discovering is they've tripled in attendance. And I just heard from someone who was saying, you know, there's friends next door who never come to church, never, ever, didn't want to come to church. And then they tell them, oh, we just jumped on your live stream. So we're going to discover that dynamic of, I think, a, a harvest that we're going to connect with. I do note, too, that sort of scarcity creates value. Mm-hmm. Um, it does. I love, I love football. I love soccer. And um, it's really interesting. So, you know, I've been like, you know, well, what does it mean there's no games? And I jump on, like, when I'm trying to distract myself or in free time, I jump on, you know, sports forums. And just there's just guys in there just like, man, like, you know, I didn't go to every game. But when the first game's back, I am there. I miss it. Like, I miss being in a stadium. I miss church. And after faith, church, I just want to be in a stadium with fans and that experience, which I can still get on TV. Now, will I be at every game? Probably not. I'll watch some on the TV later. And I can now have incredible streaming where I can download the English Premier League and watch it in high definition on my, on my TV, you know, when I, on my day off on Monday after a preached all Sunday. I still love that. But I'm also going to be at games. Yeah. Chanting and, and standing and, and cheering because I profoundly miss that. So I actually think what we're going to see is we're going to see people realize that what community, the importance of it now that it's disappeared. I think the gathering will have a profundity. There's an element like I'm preaching to a camera, but I deeply miss that human feedback loop and that interaction, that sense where you're feeling something <laughs> in the room and the Holy Spirit's moving. And, and so I think technology will continue to increase, but it's not going to be everyone's just going to be watching TV on their couches. Any sense of, uh, you know, I think of three categories of churches. Uh, some will thrive, some will survive and kind of crawl to the other side, and then some may not make up, make it rather. Any sense of what the differentiators might be between those three categories, or perhaps you have different categories, but I think some may not make it. Some will just limp to the, to the new normal, and then some will actually grow and expand and flourish. Yeah, I think I think the big key is adapt, adapt, adaptivity. Adaptive, those churches which are adaptive, um, you know, crisis seeds new things. Um, crisis, you know, it's a cliche, but the classic, you know, thing of the Chinese character of crisis is also opportunity. Um, you know, I think real strategy is actually seeing what's happening. Uh, you know, there's fascinating little thing in Brita Marqueshu wrote a book um, about you know the transfer of from a Western world to, he called it this Eurasian world. Right. And there's a bit where he's talking to these Chinese thinkers. He's, a, he's Portuguese, European. And he's, the Chinese thinker says to him one day, you guys think about in the West strategy as, here's your goal, here's how do I get there. And you plan it out. Then if something comes against that, you're like, oh man, my, my, my strategy's falling apart here because something happened which is stopping me getting to my idealized goal. And this guy says to him, in China, what we do is we look at what's the field of play, what's happening, and how do we take advantage of that? And there's this element where I think that's the kind of leadership which is going to now flourish. The people who look at this and go, I'm not just going to try and do the same thing. Yes, I'm still orientated to the kingdom of God, to preaching the gospel, to growing the global church, to responding to God, but I'm also adaptive. And I think the churches that adapt to this particular period, but also use them to sow seeds of renewal for when we come out of this period, I think they're the churches which are going to, which are going to thrive in this time. I think I'm really going to hang on to that metaphor. Hadn't, hadn't heard that. That's good. What is one question no one is asking that you think we should be asking? I feel like at a moment like this, we as a global community have been 
our eyes are on this. It's a one-issue world. Um, I, I have Reuters as an app on my phone. It's news. So it sort of oh, like yeah. just gives me the most, you know, and it's just amazing. And what I love about it is you normally have all these different stories. This is happening in Africa here. It's just, you look at it, just scroll down. Coronavirus, coronavirus, coronavirus. So we've got the world's attention. So our eyes are outward. But I think the question not many leaders are asking is what does God want to do inside of you at this time? You know, one of my big mantras I've learned as a leader from my mentor, Terry Walling from Leadership Breakthrough is, you know, personal renewal precedes corporate change. And we're all scrambling, scrambling to change our churches and how we respond to COVID-19 and all of this, you know, stuff. But I look at leaders, and as I read leaders' biographies of the great men and women of God, there's always this crisis moment that's hit. You know, I think of Ignatius Loyola, who created the Jesuits, who was this playboy, so much freedom, going out around Europe, you know, enjoying life, gets hit by a cannonball, ends up in a cave and has this cave experience. So in the midst of this, you know, I feel like God's saying to me, Mark, you can run around like a headless chicken here and respond, 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 but I want to do something in you. And so I actually believe that there is this point where that, that leadership I've lost, where I'm having to hand it across to other people, there's a space there. And the question in this is, yet there's a pandemic. There could be a, a global recession. But leader, I feel God is saying, I've got your attention for a while. There's a hidden place I want to invite you into. That space where David is anointed in the wilderness before he has the platform. And that hidden place is where the Psalms come from. That's where he beats the wild beast so he can actually beat Goliath. I think God is actually touching a bunch of leaves back to the hidden place. Maybe they were there many years ago, but how do I get back to that hidden place and reconnect with God in the midst of this global disruption? Mark, wow. Anything else? I mean, this has been so rich. We've covered so much. Yeah, I just would love to say to people, um, that there is this invitation in this moment. Um, you know, I, I feel like a little bit foolish in that I was pressing into renewal. And there was this moment where I was, I was Pete Gregg, um, who's a friend, is the head of 24-7 prayer in the UK, pastor at Emmaus Road. And we were driving through the English countryside with my wife, Trudy, and, and Pete, and we're talking about renewal. And he just made this comment. I don't even know if he remembers it, where he said, like, I promise I've looked at renewal. So we're talking about, could there be renewal in the West, revival, awakening? And he said, the problem is when I look at history, there's always some tragedy or crisis. And I was like, oh, yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe it's like individuals. Let's, let's get there without crisis. it, right? <laughs> yeah, like how do we, I, I look back and I think that's actually what I was thinking. Here's this once in a probably century disruption. The biggest disruption since World War II. You are living through it as a leader. There was this one moment where when we decided to go live stream and I was with my team who are mostly millennials. And it was the creative guys. That's who the only guys could be in the room. And, you know, we had this moment and, and we prayed and we'd been rehearsing all Saturday. Like we went all Saturday, get ready for Sunday morning. We're all Saturday. And then we were ready on Sunday morning and we were praying. And there was this intensity in prayer I'd never seen in them. Like it was like, this is their battle finally. They have like a cause, you know. And we finished the rehearsal and this line came out of me. <laughs> I said, okay, the rehearsal's done but perhaps in more ways than one. What if everything up to now has been a rehearsal? What if everything that we've been living in our leadership journeys up to this moment is actually been preparing people for this moment? What if this is now the moment where God wants to do something? He's disrupted. He's got the world's attention. He's frozen people in place. And we have this incredible technological ability that Apostle Paul would have killed for. 
to project our message to the world, to show Jesus' love, to to seed and lead and and speak vision. Um, so my encouragement for leaders at this moment feeling a frightened, scared, loss of control is step into this moment. This what if this is actually in the midst of the suffering and the pain and the economic dislocation and the medical pain? What if in the midst of this, in this dark cloud, Psalm 18 says, God comes wrapped in dark clouds with lights, light, the bolts of lightning, but the brightness of his presence is in that cloud. What if it's step into the cloud, see the brightness of God's presence? This is an incredible moment. God wants to do something. Step into it. Mark, it's been so rich. Um, you are writing and uh, doing a lot of things right now that I know leaders are going to want to track with. So where's the easiest places to stay current with you right now? Oh, look, probably just, um, yeah, just go to marksayers.co um, and then you can see it links to yeah, the podcast. And mm-hmm. um, and the podcast where you're, you're podcasting the crisis is called Rebuilders. Yes. And yes, this cultural moment will return. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Mark, what a gift. I can't thank you enough. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Well, that could have gone on for another hour and a half. It's just one of those leaders who I never get tired of hearing about. His books are great. His podcasts are great. And we got everything in the show notes for you. So you can head on over to kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 334. Uh, we will have not only transcripts, but also show notes with some key quotes and highlights and insights for you plus a link to everything we have talked about in this episode. So hang in there for the What I'm Thinking About segment. It's coming up in a few minutes, and I am going to uh, talk about the difference between online views and engagement. But hey, uh, before I preview the next episode, just a really quick shout out to my team. They have been working day and night. Thanks to Aaron Ward, who manages this podcast and has pivoted a lot to get these episodes to you. Uh, She also uh, leads my other podcast, which is uh, the Church Pulse Weekly that I started a few weeks ago with David Kinneman. Uh, So shout out to her, to Sarah Piercy, to Lauren Cardwell, to Dylan Smith, and to Sam Newhoff, all of whom work on my team. I'm so grateful for them. I promise you, they have been working night and day to come alongside leaders. Just wanted to acknowledge them. And also, do you know that Toby Lyles has done all the production on every leadership podcast you've ever heard for five years now? And uh, he has been, uh, well, we had a lot of episodes recorded that we moved and uh, just wanted to shout out. I mean, you hear my voice, but it really takes a team to build this. And in the same way, I'm sure that you're grateful for your team. I am exceptionally grateful for mine in these days. So uh, listen, we got some amazing episodes coming up. We are going to bring you some long awaited ones. I know a lot of you have been waiting for Tim Keller and for Michael Todd, they're coming up. Next episode, I've got David Kinneman and Scott Beck. David is the president of the Barna Group. Scott Beck is somebody who, well, he has one of the most fascinating stories I've ever heard. He scaled a lot of enterprises, including Blockbuster Video, and he leads a technology company now called Glue. So we've got them coming up. And for what I'm thinking about, well, I want to talk to you about online views, and I want to talk to you about engagement. So Uh, This segment is brought to you by Belay. They have a free guide on how to lead remote teams. You can simply text the word Carrie, my name, C-A-R-E-Y, to 31996 to get that. And uh, if you want to work on generosity for your church and giving, make sure you check out the free video, Fund the Vision, from Generis. Go to generis.com forward slash Carrie to pick that up. So let's talk a little bit about... um, 
online views. So first of all, I just have to name this. I mean, our church has been online for four years. Many of you have been online for a long time, but it's amazing to me how many people pushed back until about a month ago on, well, online doesn't really count. Online's not really real. And I think we all changed our mind on that. It's like, oh, wow. And you know, what's really cool is like almost half of churches are growing now, according to the data that we're collecting with Barna and Glue over at churchpulseweekly.com. About 49% of churches at the time I'm recording this are now experiencing growth compared to their physical attendance. So suddenly people are like, oh, wow, this, this thing actually works. Yes, it actually does work and it has worked for many years. So there's that. And online, I think, is also here to stay. Uh, if As you read the articles about what happens post-pandemic, uh, first of all, most people are projecting a very slow return to normal and even then not a normal normal, but a new normal with social distancing still in place and a worry or concern about a second wave of the virus or a new virus, I think we're moving into a new day. And uh, we've talked about this before. You can't just flip the switch back to, and now we just meet in person. I mean, you can try, but but good luck with that. I'm not sure it's wise. Plus, you're going to reach people online that you will never reach in person. So we've got to develop some new metrics. I have watched over the last month as so many pastors are like, wow, we got like, you know, 3,000 views. Or we have, you know, views are becoming the new attendance. And online views matter because people matter, but views are less valuable than engagement. See, attendance growth is like crack to pastors. And in the digital era, the number of views are quickly becoming the new attendance. And I think you should count them. I think you should measure them. But you shouldn't be solely focused on just increasing your number of views. What? Because, you know, I could watch your show for 15 seconds. All of a sudden it's like, oh, you know, we got this person. But the problem with views is they're anonymous. They're like, the person who sits in the back row and never serves, never gives, never gets up, never never does anything, just comes, consumes, and goes home. That's what your views are like. And you can't really build the future on that. So I would encourage you to focus on engagers, okay? Viewers watch, engagers participate. So what's an engager? An engager is someone who takes a step. An engager is somebody who jumps into a chat room and says, hey, it's Carrie listening from North of Toronto or whatever, watching from North of Toronto. Or it's somebody who leaves a comment or it's somebody who likes. That would be like a bare minimum engagement. So here are some ways that you can get a viewer to become an engager. So um, encourage them to use the comments in YouTube, Facebook, or your live stream chat rooms and tell them, hey, we want you to check in. Who's in the house? Who's there? Identify themselves. Say where they're watching from. Um, You can ask a question during your online events or services. So you can say, I'd love for you to share what your favorite family movie is in the comments. I mean, maybe during the welcome or um, share something about their favorite thing about this week. So you just get people talking during the experience. Third, have your staff or volunteers staff your channels to engage commenters, moderate discussion and get dialogue going. It's one thing to have someone who's watching leave a comment. It's an entirely other thing to have someone from your team reply to them. And you really want to have that kind of engagement. Hint, from everything I know about the algorithm, Facebook rewards that. If people are engaging with you, but you're not engaging with them, Facebook doesn't give you the same kind of coverage that you do if you engage back. Ditto with Instagram. Um, So the other thing you can do is to get them to engage is you've got to figure out fairly quickly, and some of you have done this already, 
a quick digital equivalent of the welcome card. So you know how you fill out a card and give us your email and all that stuff. Well, you need a digital equivalent. So it could be a text in number like you've heard on this show, you know, text new here to one, two, three, four, five, six, or a really simple, easy form to fill out on your website. So it could be, you know, go to xyzchurch.com forward slash new, and uh, that'll help you follow up. And then um, afterwards, you may even want to invite people to leave questions they've had about the message or the service in the comments, and then you can go after the event and answer them. So you see, viewers may watch, but engaged people are far more likely to return. So now that we're a month into this online church, the question is, are you just tracking viewers or are you starting to form engagers? Because engaged people who engage with you online are far more likely to engage their faith and engagers participate and they're far more likely to return. Uh, a final idea on that is uh, have a clear next step for your engagers. So tune in next week. I mean, it's sort of the equivalent of see you next week and that, that's okay, but it doesn't really help people explore or engage or grow their faith. And I think the idea of watching a service over time will create consumers and critics rather than disciples and contributors. So have a clear next step. I know some leaders that I'm circling up with in the leader circle are doing a virtual pizza with the pastor event online via Zoom. You know how people are having like virtual dinner parties? Well, you could do that and say, hey, normally we would host you, but and we will when we can get back together again. But in the meantime, join me for a Zoom chat. We'll do uh, pizza together. Others, uh, you might move your orientation class or your next step forum to a Facebook group or to Zoom or something like that. But you want a clear, single next step. All right, final, final point. Try to get their emails. Try to get their emails because emails never get crowded out by the algorithm. Okay, those are some ideas on how to turn viewers into engaged people because engaged people return. Engaged people are far more likely to take their faith, whether it's new or reestablished, seriously. And then you build a connection with them, right? Because you can watch a lot of things, but when you engage with people, they're like, oh yeah, I like that church. They, uh, I, think, I think they're my church now. So you see, see how that goes? So anyway, I hope that's helpful. Hey, I have a lot more over at my blog. You can go to kerryneuhoff.com. I'm writing uh, fairly regularly these days. Plus we have these podcasts. If you haven't yet subscribed to my other podcast, Church Pulse Weekly, uh, you can just search that wherever you get your podcasts. We'll link to it in the show notes as well. Uh, we bring you real-time updates on what's happening in the church and then uh, some strategies on how to move forward in this uh, time of crisis and uh, massive disruption. So thank you so much for listening. Can't wait for the next episode. And in the meantime, I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.